Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with the breaking news in our world lead. The United States military has taken down another high-altitude object flying over the United States this afternoon. The White House announced the object was shot down at 1.45 p.m. Eastern time at the direction of President Biden. U.S. officials say it was flying off Alaska's northern coast at an altitude of 40,000 feet and was approximately the size of a small car. But as of now, the administration is not offering many more details than that. We're calling this an object because that's the best description we have right now. Uh, we do not know who owns it, uh, whether it's a whether it's state owned or, or or corporate owned or privately owned. We just don't know. The context, of course, is crucial. Last Saturday, less than a week ago, the U.S. military shot down what the Biden administration says was a Chinese surveillance balloon. They did this off the coast of the United States after it had traveled across the entire United States. We are covering this breaking news from every angle. We're going to start with CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House. Phil, President Biden uh, just addressed this issue. What did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, the president was waiting on the South Lawn for the arrival of Brazilian President Lula da Silva, and he was asked by our colleague D.J. Judd if he had comment on the, the shootdown of this object. He called it a success. Didn't say anything further than that, and I think in part it's because there's still a significant number of outstanding questions. But the timeline here is important. The broader timeline is six days ago, U.S. fighters, uh, fighters shot down the Chinese surveillance balloon. This is very much a different object in terms of how it's been described on size, on capabilities, what it actually has uh, on its, uh, in the object itself. But last night, uh, the U.S. became aware of the existence of this object. Late yesterday evening, uh, fighter jets were sent up to actually kind of basically view the object, try and get a sense of what it actually was. It was not responsive. They determined it was unmanned, but they did not get a lot of information because it was in the evening. They were sent up again this morning to try and get a better sense of what the object actually was. After that uh, effort by the two U.S. fighter jets, the president, who had been briefed on Thursday night, the recommendation was given to the president by the Pentagon that they should shoot the object down. Uh, given the lack of information, given the lack of responsiveness, the president ordered the shoot down of the object. And at 1.45 p.m., that object was shot down. Recovery efforts are now underway. They believe that it landed in the Arctic Ocean, uh, which is currently frozen. So that process is underway right now. But still a significant number of questions and obviously a very different approach than we saw with the Chinese spy balloon. One thing officials have made clear, though, they saw no indication uh, of any military risk uh, to U.S. civilians from this object itself, but clearly <coughs> moved to action very quickly, Jake. Natasha Bertrand, let me bring you in. What happens next uh, in terms of the investigation and in terms of all this debris that now exists? 
Yeah, Jake, so what we were told by both the White House and by the Pentagon just then is that debris is kind of sitting on frozen waters in U.S. territorial waters and just kind of waiting to be picked up now. U.S. Army helicopters have been launched as part of this recovery effort. And ultimately, when they are able to kind of pick up that debris, it will likely go through very much uh, the same process that we are seeing taking place now with the Chinese balloon. It will likely uh, go to an FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia, to be analyzed, and they will have to see whether there is anything significant in terms of an intelligence capability that the U.S. could potentially gather on. You know, but it remains unclear, of course, whether or not this is actually something that is significant in terms of the U.S.'s capability uh, to, get, to collect intelligence on it because it apparently was not transmitting at the time that it was shot down. But ultimately, you know, the U.S. decided that this was the right call because it posed a threat to civilian aircraft. And moving forward, I think they are going to try to do this in a faster way because there is not uh, the, 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 you know, uh, the complication that we saw with the, the Chinese balloon in terms of it being underwater. This is kind of sitting on top of the surface, and the U.S. has been able to launch that recovery effort already. It is also, we should note, very small. It is only the size of a small car, not the size of three buses, as we saw with the Chinese balloon. And the payload, that's that part of the uh, object that actually carries the key equipment there, it is also very small. So this should not be an overly complicated recovery effort, but of course, we'll have to see how it goes. Kylie Atwood at the State Department, we can't ignore, obviously, the context less than a week after the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon. Um, how, how big a deal could this end up being? And is there any determination as of now whether this was Chinese as well? Well, it is really hard to tell at this point how big of a deal this incident will be in comparison to the Chinese spy balloon. I I think we can say that as of now, uh, they really just don't know if this is a Chinese object. If it were to be, that would definitely inflame U.S.-China tensions even more. But U.S. officials are saying uh, they don't know who is responsible for this, if it's a state-owned actor or if it's a private actor. And we are expecting, however, that there's going to be some confrontation between the United United States and whomever is responsible for this object going into U.S. airspace uh, once they figure out who that person or who that entity actually is. What's becoming clear, Jake, however, you know, given the context of what's happened over the last week, is that the Biden administration, the U.S. government, is treating U.S. airspace with incredibly intense vigilance right now. And the question going forward is, what does that policy look like when any kind of unidentified objects comes into the U.S. airspace? Are they going to shoot it down immediately. There's a lot of questions going forward here. And Natasha, how high was this object flying? Because uh, uh, it was lower than the Chinese balloon, right, which was uh, around 60,000 feet in the air. Pretty substantially lower. So this object was flying around 40,000 feet, which is about the top end of what civilian aircraft would fly at. The Chinese balloon was flying at 65,000 feet. So it did not pose as much of a risk to civilian aircraft. There was uh, a notice to uh, flights uh, around the Chinese spy balloon when it was being shot down, of course, to avoid the airspace. But in this case, the really big concern here was that it was flying really at the same altitude or just above where civilian aircraft would fly. And President Biden apparently thought that was a risk that was just he was not willing to take, Jake. All right, Natasha, Kylie, Phil, thanks so much uh, on this breaking news story. Joining us to discuss Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. He's on the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and he's a former Green Beret who served in the U.S. Army for more than two decades. So, Congressman, what's your reaction to hearing this object was just shot out of the sky uh, just a couple hours ago? Well, Jake, I think it's, it's going to continue to beg you know, more policy questions. OK, so this one was at 40,000 feet. Uh, the president determined it was a safety of flight risk. 
Does that then imply if this one had been at 60, 65,000 feet, like the first balloon, we would have let it continue to traverse into Canada and possibly the United States? Is that the new criteria now? Is some type of interference with civilian aircraft? Uh, so that's kind of question one. I still have the question if it had not been for some enterprising photographers in Montana, uh, whether we would be taking this more decisive action at all. Was it really the kind of the public outcry, the violation of our sovereignty and airspace that's driving this change in policy? And then finally, Jake, I think you know the, the big outstanding question is why, if this was a yet another Chinese balloon, why are that is she deciding to do this now? Uh, and, you know, right on the heels of his meeting with Biden, uh, there was kind of a, an attempt for a reset button there in the relationship. Obviously, Blinken's canceled his trip, and yet they're either going to double down or the Chinese military is making moves that their leadership uh, weren't fully apprised of. Either way, that's credibly disturbing, and we just have more and more questions. Well, what do you think the policy should be? Well, look, I think that a violation of our airspace by an entity that can surveil, uh, that can gather information that can be used to inflict harm in the future, uh, uh, shouldn't be tolerated, should be shot down. And I think what's what's been left out of the discussion, Jake, is the message that it sends to our adversaries by not doing so. Uh, and, you know, we still have a lot to learn, but it could have been that uh, that the Chinese once they got away with it for the last several years, believed uh, that they could get away with it again. It turns out they did. We still have yet to learn uh, what they collected with that first one that hovered over not just our missiles, but one of our stealth bomber bases and the strategic command responsible for all command and control over all of our nuclear uh, arsenal. That's incredibly significant. We wanna know what was transmitted back real time. What were they able to collect? Uh, we'll see, you know, what we do with the forensics, but I'm glad at least now we're taking action on the West Coast before it enters rather than waiting till the spycraft is done spying. You said we should shoot down, the U.S. military should shoot down any surveillance aircraft. Is, is that regardless if it's, if it's manned or unmanned? Well, I think uh, that's a great question. And, and in our rules of engagement, uh, I do think so. If it's entering our airspace and we deem it's going to be a uh, again, if it's going to collect significant intelligence that could harm us in the future, uh, I think that should fit the criteria. And we need to make that we need to make that red line well known uh, uh, to our adversaries. CNN's Oren Lieberman just asked the Pentagon press secretary about the decision to shoot the object down. I want to play that exchange and get your reaction. The decision to shoot it down before it entered too far into the U.S. airspace, the Pentagon bowing to political pressure from the Hill. Uh, look, again, we're going to judge each of these objects on its own merits. It entered into U.S. airspace on February 9th. Uh, we, we sent up aircraft to assess what it was. The decision was made that it posed a, a reasonable threat to civilian air traffic. The president uh, gave the order to take it down, and we took it down. It sounds to me, though, that you think that President Biden made this call because of political pressure. Am I reading you right? Well, I'm, I'm you know... I'm trying to, that's what it seems like, Jake, to be candid. I'm trying to understand why this much smaller, uh, by their own admission, much less capable uh, balloon with a much smaller payload was deemed such a threat 
that the other one wasn't. And it can't just be the altitude. Uh, and to your point on, you know, what our red line should be, I guarantee you, if we put an object over Beijing or over some of their s sensitive sites at 40 to 60,000 feet for days, collecting sensitive intelligence, they would take action. Uh, we need to take reciprocal action and, again, make that clear up front. Yeah. Senator Marco Rubio, your senator from Florida, said to me on Sunday that if we sent the Goodyear blimp over there, they would shoot it down. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A busy right. Friday afternoon playing out here. Uh, President Biden's order to short, shoot down this new object over Alaska came just hours before he welcomed a world leader to the White House, plus a discovery of yet another classified document, this one during an FBI search at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're back with our breaking news as the United States government confirms that President Biden ordered the downing of yet another high-altitude object today, this time near Alaska. This happening at the same time that President Biden is hosting Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, at the White House, hoping to hit the reset button on relations with that country. CNN chief international anchor Christiana Mampour is here. Christiana, it's been quite a day here. Uh, you sat down for an exclusive interview uh, with Lula. But before we get to that, I do want to get your, your reaction to the news about the Biden administration shooting down another object uh, this time over the coast, over Alaska somewhere. Well, look, it, it does seem extraordinary. And I think what was really extraordinary is that both the, the White House and the Pentagon had briefings at which they could really tell us nothing. <laughs> what exactly is this object? We don't know. And we won't know until they retrieve it and bring it to us and tell us what it is. But clearly it's very politicized in this country. Obviously, we know that balloons have flown around this country through previous administrations. And it is a mystery. And it comes at a time. They haven't said whether this is a state-owned object. But the last one they assigned to China, where the relations are so bad that anything like this can, you know, can... can potentially cause accidents. And I think it really does go to the, to the point that a country like the United States needs to have better relations with really important countries like China. Yeah, and the Secretary of uh, Defense, uh, Austin, called his counterpart yep. in China a few days ago and they didn't take the call. Exactly. Let's go to your uh, interview uh, with Lula now, um, who has adopted a policy of non-intervention when it comes to the Ukraine um, defense of uh, its own borders from Russia intervention. Um, that, that's a sticking point uh, with Biden. I it is think. a sticking point because they are both going to be talking very, very, very sharply about supporting and reinforcing democracy. Both obviously had their January 6th moments. Right. Um, and both were subject to right-wing, fake news, conspiracy theories around legitimate elections, and both have survived. Lula wants to make sure that does survive. Of course, you know, they have had military dictatorships in the past, so he has to be very careful about making sure the military there is now completely out of politics. But on Ukraine, he's a good old-fashioned lefty. Right. He is not the kind that believes in intervention or invasion. And he's basically saying he's toned down a little bit because before he used to say it takes two to tango, right. in, implying that maybe Ukraine was a, a blame. Right. Now, he's saying, right. now he's saying that Russia made a mistake, but that there needs to be some kind of credible sort of peace process. So I talked to him about that. Tell us, and you'll, let's run the clip. Yeah, let's run it. Do you believe that a country which is a sovereign, independent, democratic country, like your own, like Ukraine, has the right to self-defense and to defend itself against an illegal invasion. 
Lógico que ela tem um direito. Of course it has the right to defend itself. Okay. Lógico que ela tem of course. Defender, of course it has that right because the invasion wasn't a mistake on the part of Russia. It, the Russia couldn't have done that and after all it was part of the UN Security Council. And so this was not discussed at the UN Security Council. So what I want to say is the following. What what have been mistaken it's already done. The mistake was already done. Now we have to find people to fix the mistake, to fix the error that was made. I know that Brazil doesn't have that international political clout to promote that in this perverse rationale of conflicts in the world. But I can say to you that I will dedicate a lot of my time to find a way, a road for someone to start talking about peace. I was with the German chancellor a week ago. And he asked and he you to send to his leopards to Ukraine. And you said no. No, it was not the tanks. It was ammunition. Okay, or ammunition. It was, I didn't want to send it because if I sent to him the ammunition, I would join the war. If I send the ammunition from Brazil, the ammunition that you're asking for... But you just uh, agreed that it was defense. This will take us to war. I don't want to go join the war. I want to end with the war. I don't want to join the war. I want to end with the war. This is the dilemma, and this is my commitment. So it's a real conflict between him and President Biden, although they possibly bonded over Biden's nemesis, Donald Trump, and his nemesis, Lula's nemesis, Bolsonaro. Well, exactly. And he has good relations with with Putin, with Xi, with Modi, the BRIC alliance. And he said he wants to talk to them about this issue. Uh, You know, the U.S. says there's no... No, no basis for any peace negotiations right now. But yeah, on the on the Bolsonaro Trump thing, he said, you know, Bolsonaro was a faithful copy, like a like a photocopy of Trump. They both hate the press. They both hate women. They both hate their indigenous people. I mean, he went on. I mean, he was really and he said, we cannot allow this to to take the place of democracy. And we've both been tested and we both absolutely have to shore it up. And don't forget, you know, Lula and the U.S. had a great relationship. Trump and Bolsonaro essentially, you know, threw it up in the air. So now he's trying to reset the relationship. Fascinating. Can't wait to watch the rest of it. Yeah, Christiana Mampour, thank you so much. Coming up next, what we're learning about the classified document found today at the Indiana home of former Vice President Mike Pence. In our politics lead, FBI agents removed one additional classified document after a search of former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home earlier today. That's according to a Pence spokesperson. Agents are expected to search his Washington, D.C. office in the coming days. Pence's aides say they have been fully cooperating with the Justice Department since a dozen classified records were found at Pence's home last month. All of this, of course, coming just hours after Pence was subpoenaed by special counsel Jack Smith, who was investigating Donald Trump and his role in the January 6th insurrection. CNN's Paula Reed has more. FBI agents arrived at the Indiana home of former Vice President Mike Pence Friday to search for classified documents. In a statement released after the search, Pence's team revealed investigators removed one document with classified markings and six additional pages without such markings that were not discovered in the initial review by the vice president's counsel. Let me be clear. Those classified documents should not have been in my personal residence. Mistakes were made. And I take full responsibility. 
The Justice Department is now reviewing how those documents ended up there, especially after he denied taking any such materials. Pence consented to allowing the FBI in his home after his lawyers found a dozen documents marked classified in the residence last month. There'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. A member of his legal team was present as agents scoured the home while Pence was on the West Coast visiting family after the arrival of two new grandchildren. The vice president asked for full compliance. His team publicly touting their cooperation in the search in contrast to another Justice Department matter as Pence now faces a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith in his criminal investigation into January 6th. Pence's lawyers have been in negotiations for months as he's a key witness to what was happening inside the White House around the election and eventual Capitol attack. I told the Secret Service that I was not leaving the Capitol. And to Trump's pressure campaign to overturn the election. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And the wrath he endured when he refused. Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done, Trump tweeted as the Capitol was under siege. When I saw those images and when when I read a tweet that President Trump issued saying that I lacked courage in that moment, it angered me greatly. Pence could try to assert privilege over certain conversations with the former president, but he'll have a hard time refusing to answer questions about ones he included in his much-publicized memoir. And I looked at him and, and I said, I guess there's just two things we'll probably never agree on. And he looked up and said, what? And I referred to my role on January 6th. And then I said, I'm never going to stop praying for you contemplates a presidential run. He is clearly trying to be cooperative regarding the search for additional classified documents in contrast to Trump. But when it comes to the January 6th investigation, he won't go so far as to voluntarily cooperate against his former running mate. And his aides are insisting that that subpoena is the result of a very contentious process. Now, Jake, of course, a subpoena gives him political cover if he hits the campaign trail, if he does wind up having to give testimony in that probe. Yeah, but he hired a, a very uh, a lawyer, Emmett Flood, who's yes. very hawkish on the executive privilege idea. Exactly. And I can't wait to see how this all plays out. But look, he really opened the door with his memoir, right? You can't go before the grand jury and say, sorry, I can't answer that question. But you can read all about it in my book. So he, he muddied the waters a little, but it'll be really interesting, these questions about privilege. Interesting. Paula Reed, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Nick, thanks for joining us. Uh, the FBI found another classified document in Vice President Pence's possession. Does that complicate things for him? I don't really think so. I mean, I think what he did, the same thing that Joe Biden did, was they basically invited the FBI in. It put the onus on the FBI as opposed to their own legal team to come up with whatever was there. Uh, and certainly allowing the FBI to do it allows them basically to say, both Biden and Pence, to say, look, we, we let them in. We cooperated. Um, they looked and this is what they found. I, I think that really ends the matter. This is totally unlike uh, the situation with Donald Trump. Well, explain how, because, I mean, there are going to be people who think that if all three men are not held accountable in the same exact way, then it will be unfair. But explain why you, you don't agree with that proposition. Well, it's because Donald Trump basically for 
a year didn't turn over the documents, even though he was asked on numerous occasions to do so. He finally turned some over, but didn't turn them all over. Uh, he was given a grand jury subpoena, uh, which he claimed to produce documents in response to and said there were no other documents, which was a lie. Uh, and as a result, uh, the government found out it was a lie. They put together a search warrant uh, based on probable cause from probably people that are insiders with Trump uh, and executed a search warrant and found a lot of other documents. So basically, you had an individual who purposely took the documents in the first place, purposely refused to return them, purposely lied about them, uh, and obstructed a grand jury investigation. That is a totally different kettle of fish uh, than what we have with President Biden and Vice President Pence. Completely different. So a separate but from... I think... Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, look, at the big problem here is why doesn't the government keep better track of these documents? My local library kept better track of the books that I borrowed and knew when to come after me when I didn't turn them in. Why doesn't the government do that as a general practice? Um, so there, is, there are two different things going on here with Vice President Pence. One is the uh, classified documents. The second and separate issue is the special counsel that had been appointed uh, by Attorney General Garland, Jack Smith, has, has subpoenaed Pence because they want to ask him about his interactions with then-President Trump leading up to the 2020 election and on January 6th. Subpoenaing Pence seems rather adversarial, and that's what his aides suggest is going on. And, and this comes on the heels of Pence's team publicly complaining that they think in that first issue that there's a double standard between how Pence and Biden have been treated. What do you think? Well, Biden isn't a witness in the January 6th case uh, with respect to this. Oh, you mean talking about in the, the, documents. the documents in the documents? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if Biden did receive a subpoena. I don't think we know that one way or the other. Um, it really doesn't make a difference. Um, but it would be interesting to know if, if President Biden did receive a subpoena as well. Don't forget there are different prosecutors looking at this, so they may be just handling it in different ways. Normally, with documents that you're trying to obtain, a prosecutor tries to get cooperation in the first instance. Sometimes they might give a subpoena, sometimes they might not. Um, I don't really think it says a lot uh, when you probably have two different prosecutors dealing with two different people on the same issue. It just doesn't really say a lot. Yeah, I only know of a subpoena having to do with the special counsel's investigation uh, when it comes to the vice president, not the not the documents. Um, but in any case, Nick Ackerman, right. thank you so much uh, for your assistance and, and conversation. Coming up, how much politics may have played into President Biden's decision to have this new high altitude object over Alaska shut down? Stay with us. And we're back with two big stories. The White House announcing that President Biden today ordered the military to shoot down yet another high-altitude object, this time hovering over Alaska, and the FBI removing one document marked classified from former Vice President Mike Pence's home. New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu is with me now. Governor, just your average Friday. Nothing much going yeah, on. Yeah, nothing much going on in, in D.C., right? What do you, what do you make of... Um, what do you make of uh, how Biden handled this new object? Uh, Sounds like he handled it better. Swift, decisive action. I mean, I, I think as a lot of folks understand China's poking at us. 
right? They're kind of testing us. They're seeing if our political divides are enough to make us. We don't know uh, this is from China. I mean, no, we don't. We don't. It uh, might of, be. Of course. Yeah, it, it might, might be. be. It might not be. But he, in this instance, wh- whoever it might be from and whatever the result is, they seem to have handled it swiftly and, and appropriately. Which is so, funny. and then the other thing, of course, is all these classified documents that apparently presidents and vice presidents just can't keep track of. It, it, but the question is, is it just presidents and vice presidents? Is it senators? Is it folks on the I mean, who knows how many classified documents are really out there? I think that's one of the things that a lot of folks are... We hear about so-and-so had another classified document, and people go, yeah. I mean, there seems to be a complete lack of public trust in terms of the transparency about the fact that we have no system to, to, to manage this stuff. Hopefully they create one going forward. It's not that difficult, by the way. They try to make like it is. And, and where are they? Who else has them? How, else, how long have they been out there? My sense is there's a lot more classified documents in a lot more hands that we, than we know of. I think that's probably right. Uh, we had former Speaker uh, Paul Ryan on the show a few weeks ago, and he said when he read these, do- you know, when he would read classified documents, he would go down to a special room in the Capitol, a skiff, it's called, uh, and, and he would read them there. And they would go into a safe, and then he'd go back up to his office. But apparently presidents and vice presidents are just, they're like leaflets or something. Yeah, as governor, we do the same thing. We have a skiff. We have, I, I, I read a, a classified or secret document, and I literally make sure, my, or my staff, we hand it right back. We're in, we're in a, a secure area. We hand it right back. I don't want it. I, we have the information. We'll act on it or not. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, apparently there's no protocols uh, when you hit the White House. So your dad was a White House chief of staff and your brother was a senator. Have you ever talked to them about this? I mean, are they on your page? Like, how, There why? is one room my father just won't let us in. No, is that true? Totally, oh. you know, totally. No, no, no. I, it's just because no, no. he has the good brandy in yeah. there. That's, the, the, that's what that is. No, I, no I've, ne- I've never talked to him about it. But, uh, but again, you know, when you talk about presidents and vice presidents, they obviously have a, a whole different level of, of access. And, um, look, I just think there was no protocol. It sounds like there were no protocols. There was no, you know, system, uh, which is pretty shocking, frankly, because there's, my guess is, and I've seen very sensitive information. Yeah, it is weird. Let's turn to 2024 because you've just formed the Live Free or Die Committee. If people don't know, that is the, the motto of New Hampshire. It's how we live. It's I know. A, it's, a very it's, ex- it's a very extreme license plate. Um, live Free or Die. It's a national political fundraising group. In other words, possibly testing the waters for a presidential run. Possibly. Um, you can, if you want, just uh, get all the flirtation out of the way and just announce just right, jump now. right in right, right here, now. Right, right here, now. Right now. If you want. I wouldn't want to step on Nikki's toes. <laughs> I don't no. think she's doing it on my show. No. Well, look, uh, it's a, well, this organization has actually been around for a little while. Um, look, New Hampshire's getting a lot of national attention. That's really cool. So I've been traveling the country all for the last year. We talk about uh, the fact that it's a purple state and how Republicans can win, how to expand our base. Uh, the real focus of this organization is to try to get more Republicans into our base and younger generation, especially more independents saying, hey, look, you might not love some of the leadership that, that has been out there, uh, the imagery and, and being part of that. But uh, the Republican Party really does stand for low taxes, limited government, local control, individual responsibility, all those tenants of live free or die. The fact that in New Hampshire, we have no sales tax, we have no income tax, but we have the most efficient government. How do we do it? How do we win on that? How do conservatives win? I love that stuff. And I love going around, not, not just kind of bragging about New Hampshire, but showing other states how they can kind of copy that model and be successful. So that's kind of brought it into, well, maybe you should think about running. So we're having some conversations. But uh, it's just a great opportunity to highlight what New Hampshire has, what Live Free or Die is all about. Be positive, right? Be aspirational, inspirational, instead of just spending all our time as in leadership, yelling at the other party, that doesn't, that doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't get people excited. Is there room for a Governor Sununu in uh, the Trump era? Or are we not? The Trump, the- I think we're beyond the Trump era. We're not in the Trump era anymore. You uh, no, no. I look, I think we're in the, the death throws, if you will. Look, I, I, I thank, thank you the, 
thank the president for his service. He did his time. But as a party, I think everyone can say we're moving on. Right. I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not pro-Trump. We're just we're just moving on. And I think you'll see a, a lot of great candidates jump into the race in 24. So New Hampshire often is a very close election when it comes to the presidential. Yeah. Were you surprised that President Biden was pushing this new primary calendar in which the New Hampshire uh, first of the nation primary is shunned? Uh, did that surprise you? Because, I mean, did. that could be the difference, right? 4,000 votes? A- absolutely. Look, that could, that could be the difference. But more importantly, what it showed me is they, they didn't think it through, right? I, I get what the, former, the, the current president is doing. He's just trying to give some personal political payback to his buddies in, in South Carolina. But if you think about the problem it's now created for Joe Biden— and that our primary is going first, whether the Democrat Party likes it or not. We're going first. We'll be probably in late January sometime. And what it does is it opens a huge opportunity for anybody to challenge him. Because if he's not going to be on the ballot, now someone's going to get all that earned media with very little money, get a lot of political momentum to challenge him as they go forward and come out a big winner in New Hampshire. It just opens up his political flank, if you will, to be challenged. And I have no doubt a lot of folks are going to take advantage of that. Now, the argument is that New Hampshire is so white, it doesn't represent the Democratic Party. I mean, I think that's well, what we, Look, I'll, I would say this. They, I heard that argument. Oh, you need more di- You need to more send the di- primary more diversity. some more diversity to a state of South Carolina where the voter turnout is about 16% versus New Hampshire that sets records in voter turnout. So what's the point of having a lot of diversity if you don't encourage and, and get people to come out and vote and participate in the process? We have the highest voter participation, whether you're low income, high income, inner city, rural, doesn't matter. Black, white, Latino, doesn't matter. Everyone participates. So I'll put our diversity of participation up against anybody's because we engage the, the folks that want to come in. We don't, we don't want to care about their money. We don't care about their name ID. We got to look you in the eye and say, we pay off on you as a person. Now we'll get to policy. And that's a wonderful first filter for America. The governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, it's always good to have awesome, you on. Man. Thanks good so much for you. being here. CNN is also on the scene of that earthquake disaster where cell phone signals and faint tapping sounds are motivating crews to keep digging despite grim discoveries along the way. Stay with us. Days after that 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Turkey and Syria, at least 23,000 people are dead. But... There remain people helping, and the hope of finding survivors in the rubble is fading fast, according to a Syrian aid organization. Syria's civil defense volunteer organization, better known as the White Helmets, gained global recognition for rescuing civilians from bombed buildings throughout the more than a decade-long civil war in Syria. It's been called the most dangerous job in the world. And now the White Helmets are back at it. Let's bring in White Helmets volunteer Ismail al-Abdullah in Idlib, Syria. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. In the past, White Helmets trained with Turkey's elite earthquake response team, so everyone can be better equipped to, to respond to pulling people out of buildings destroyed by bombs. How is responding to an earthquake different than responding to a, a, a bombing? Responding to the bombing, uh, it's uh, somehow uh, is different because when we uh, the earthquake uh, caused many. Uh, Buildings collapsed buildings in many different areas and in many villages and city across northwest Syria. We responded to bombs, uh, maybe one, two, three buildings or in one time, but 100 sites at the same time and uh, a large number, big number of people uh, 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 struck, stuck under the rubble. It's really different. Yeah, the bombing is dangerous, and uh, the, maybe uh, may they another 
attack or another airstrike uh, hit us while we're responding. Uh, mm. But it's a little bit uh, far from the earthquake. earthquake this uh, natural disaster was big far from our usual uh, response. That's why we uh, called in the first place it's bigger than us and then beyond our capacity. And Ismail, we've heard that aid workers in Aleppo in Syria say that the hospitals are under tremendous strain. What are you seeing in Idlib where you are? The hospital here uh, overwhelmed with injured people. Uh, all what we have in northwest Syria are five hospitals. And those hospitals uh, are not enough to receive all the injured. Uh, the, uh, there, uh, there are not enough uh, doctors. Most of them uh, left the country uh, years ago. And um, uh, medical supplies, the bombing that happened to, the, uh, to those hospitals and destroyed many hospitals, they were, and they were, uh, those hospitals were a target for the bombing before. Uh, so that's why uh, the hospital are not able to receive all the injured and uh, provide the proper uh, uh, treatment. Ismail, Syria's president Bashar al-Assad criticized Western countries in his first televised comments since the earthquake struck. He said Western sanctions are the reason that aid is not arriving, but uh, American officials insist that humanitarian efforts are not included in, in sanctions. Um, what do you make of that? What are you seeing on the ground there? Uh, in, our, in, in the area here in northwest, northwest Syria, is uh, totally different. Uh, there, uh, there is a cross-border. Uh, we receive the humanitarian aid uh, uh, since years, not from the Assad regime-controlled areas. Uh, Assad regime, uh, in the first place, it's the same regime that destroyed the cities and reduced many cities to rubble. And uh, uh, they, they didn't, uh, the, this regime uh, didn't in the, uh, save and uh, uh, those people who are trapped uh, and, uh, by the earthquake in Aleppo city in many, many uh, cities, Latakia and Aleppo, we received many uh, reports that they were still many people under the rubble and the, the, the efforts of the Assad regime are, were not enough to receive them. Uh, and all of that, the, the, main, the main player in this, uh, in this was the Assad regime by bombing the infrastructure in Aleppo City back in 2016 yeah. and uh, bombing, uh, bombing hospitals in northwest Syria. Ismail al-Abdullah in Idlib, Syria, thank you so much for what you do and thanks for joining us. Many of you want to help and I know that you are reaching out and trying to figure out ways that you could do so. Check out CNN's Impact Your World. Head to CNN.com slash impact for more. We're going to go live to the Pentagon next uh, where we're learning more about that new high altitude object spotted just last night and shot down this afternoon by the Pentagon. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The Biden administration facing crises on multiple fronts in Ukraine, a new barrage of Russian strikes. Is this the beginning of a new Russian offensive? Plus, American rescue crews on the scene of that devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. I'll speak with a responder helping nonstop to try to find survivors. And leading this hour, President Biden giving the order to shoot down a new high-altitude object, this one near Alaska, the decision coming less than a week after 
A Chinese spy balloon was shot down by the U.S. military off the coast of South Carolina. Let's start this hour with CNN's Orrin Lieberman, who's at the Pentagon Force. And Orrin, the Biden administration isn't saying much about this object. Uh, They said it's not a balloon, though. Not at all. We don't have a good description of what this object was, except that we know its size, roughly that of a small-sized car. We have no description beyond that in terms of what it looked like, how it operated, how it even floated, for that matter, or if it was a balloon. It just makes it dramatically smaller than the Chinese balloon we followed across much of the United States. We heard a short time ago from U.S. officials that it was shot down about 10 miles off the northern coast of Alaska. So if we take a look at this map and we can look at where the FAA established a temporary flight restriction, it was essentially right in the middle of that area, right near Prudhoe Bay on the northern end of Alaska there. That's where this was shot down. When it was first detected yesterday, those officials say that an F-35 went up to investigate. It was ultimately an F-22 firing an AIM-9X that shot it down. Worth noting that that's the same type of aircraft and type of missile that shot down the Chinese balloon off the coast of South Carolina. One of the questions we asked at the Pentagon briefing was... If there was so much intelligence to gain by letting the previous balloon fly across the United States and being able to observe it, why was this one shot down so quickly, especially when the senators from Alaska were furious that it wasn't shot down earlier? Was the Pentagon bowing to political pressure? Here's what the Pentagon had to say. Decision to shoot it down before it entered too far into the U.S. airspace, the Pentagon bowing to political pressure from the Hill? Uh, Look, again, we're going to judge each of these objects on its own merits. It entered into U.S. airspace on February 9th. Uh, we, we sent up aircraft to assess what it was. The decision was made that it posed a, a reasonable threat to civilian air traffic. The president uh, gave the order to take it down, and we took it down. In the end, this was shot down right over the edge of the water there, just a few miles out. That water frozen, though, so it did essentially fall on ice. There was no uh, serious threat of collateral damage just because of how small this was, according to officials we've spoken with. Orrin, has the military collected any debris from this object yet, and, and what happens next? Not yet, as far as we know. They have deployed helicopters as well as a C-130 Hercules. Uh, This is a few miles off the coast, so it may be difficult to find. And it's also worth remembering that up at those uh, latitudes, there is much less sunlight. There isn't a full day to go searching for this. It was shot down essentially at roughly the crack of dawn, so there are a few hours to work with there. But we haven't gotten a confirmation yet that the object has been spotted and recovered. At this moment, the Pentagon is deferring a lot of the answers on what this is and what capabilities it had until they have recovered it. So we're waiting for that update to confirm that that has happened and they have it in uh, essentially in their hands. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's uh, chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly. Uh, Phil, the Chinese balloon a week ago flew across almost the entire United States uh, before President Biden gave the order to shoot it down or before the Pentagon thought it was wise to do so. What is the administration saying about why President Biden acted so quickly this time if political considerations did not necessarily make a play in it? Yeah, Jake, I I think it's important. One of the things White House officials have been very clear about is that they see these two situations, despite both the proximity to one another and the similarities, at least on their faces, somewhat apples to oranges, as one official told me. The president was asked uh, about this shortly after the news broke uh, as he was awaiting the arrival of the Brazilian president, and he said it was a success. But in terms of why he was willing to give the order on the Pentagon's recommendation so much quicker than he was with the Chinese spy balloon, What officials are saying very clearly is they believe, as Oren laid out, it was because of where the uh, 
object was actually flying. 40,000 feet was about the upper end of where civilian air travel uh, or, or air traffic can actually tra uh, traverse. That was very different from the Chinese spy balloon, which is around 65,000 feet above that, not a threat to civilian air travel. That threat or potential threat was really the driving force behind President Biden's decision to give the order. Now, the president was briefed about this on Thursday night around the time when two uh, U.S. aircraft, two U.S. fighter jets got the first view of the object. Those fighter jets went back up again this morning to take another view. As Orrin laid out, there are still so many questions about the shape, about the object itself, what it was actually doing. They do believe it was unmanned. They've said it was unmanned, and they did not believe that it posed any imminent military threat to civilians on the ground. However, the decision was made due to the lack of responsiveness and due to how high it was flying or how much lower it was flying uh, than the Chinese balloon to take the shot to actually take that object out. I think the big question right now, and one we've been trying to figure out is, is this reflective of some policy shift? Is this reflective of a new policy when it comes to unidentified objects moving into U.S. airspace? Officials have been very clear up to this point. They are taking each of these instances uh, as they come separately, not necessarily defining a wide ranging policy about how this moves forward. But it is obviously within the context of what we've seen over the course of the last week. And I think U.S. officials right now, as they try and learn more information during the process of this recovery, uh, are trying to get answers that they hope they can deliver to both lawmakers and the public in the near term, Jake. Phil, obviously, uh, China is, I would imagine, the chief suspect uh, behind this new object. But there's no evidence, and we haven't been told uh, that China was responsible for this. Has the White House even hinted about who might be behind this? They really haven't. And I think that's been uh, a very interesting piece of all of this. They have been explicit and repeatedly so that they do not have any knowledge of the origin of this object. They don't know if it's state owned, if it's private owned, if it's commercial. That is part of the process that they hope to figure out during the recovery, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss the former Secretary of Defense during the Trump administration, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, um, what's your response to the news today? How do you think President Biden handled uh, this object? Well, it's obviously surprising, Jake. Who would think that we'd have another uh, unidentified object, if you will, flying throughout our airspace? Uh, I think it's good that the administration reacted quickly and shot it down. Uh, but I'm curious to find out more about it. I think, as, as your TF noted, DOD has moved to the site, I'm sure securing it, and will begin the debris collection. And it will take a matter of days, of course, to collect it all up, get it back to a facility to examine, and we can learn more. What's curious about this, because I know everybody wants to jump to assume it's another Chinese balloon, but the, if you recall, last week's balloon from China uh, actually came from the, south, uh, from the southwest and followed the Aleutians. This one's coming from the north. And so it's, it's very curious, that angle. And I think so, I, I think so we should withhold judgment about who it is, what it's doing, how it got there. It may end up being just a weather balloon or something like that. So it'll be very, very curious to see where this came from. And my goodness, if it was another Chinese balloon, that raises some serious questions about what's going on in Beijing. What countries engage in surveillance of this type of the United States other than China? Well, of course, from outer space, we know our adversaries, such as China, Russia, would, would be doing surveillance as well. I don't know if they have a balloon program. And, of course, there are many other countries that have uh, that do meteorological, climate, and other scientific research that, that put balloons up for that type of work. So it could be any number of countries with, 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 non, with non-hostile intent who are, have balloons lofted in the air and moving around the world. But China is the only one that you know of that, that conducts balloons. Uh Balloon-type surveillance. Uh, Russia's surveillance is only done uh, from outer space. 
Well, I, I don't know, Jake. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, we, we know that certainly Russia does surveillance from others from outer space. We know other countries are trying to do the same. Iran, for example, are, are trying to get payloads up in space permanently. So uh, it'll be curious to find out. I, I suppose this is an area where our intelligence community is now working diligently to find out who has these capabilities that may be putting balloons up and, uh, and, and circling the globe, traversing the United States, you name it. Earlier on the show, Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida suggested uh, that it should be U.S. policy to shoot down any aircraft that enters U.S. airspace. I asked him if, is that regardless of whether the aircraft is manned or unmanned? I want you to listen to his response. I do think so. If it's entering our airspace and we deem it's going to be a, uh, again, if it's going to collect significant intelligence that could harm us in the future, uh, I think that should fit the criteria, and we need to make that we need to make that red line well known uh, uh, to our adversaries. Do you agree with that? Well, this is raising a lot of questions. I do think we have to need to have a clear policy. We have to defend our sovereignty, and that means defending our airspace. Uh, we we need to improve our procedures. It seems like the administration's procedures have improved in the last week, given what happened in in the last few hours. And, uh, and we should declare very clearly how we will treat certain things. I don't think, as a rule of thumb, we should allow, uh, you know, balloons carrying surveillance equipment to traverse the United States. Uh, we just cannot tolerate that. But it is important to have the procedures. You know, you send up an F-22, you make sure you take a good look at it. It does make a difference whether it's manned or unmanned. And we should be able to very quickly reach out to a foreign capital and say, hey, is this yours? What's it doing? Why? Uh, you know, we have enough airspace there to be able to do that in a timely manner. So I think this is going to really uh, require the Pentagon and the administration to examine all these procedures and come up with a very clear policy. But I think the principle we have to hang on to that maybe Representative Waltz was getting at is we just cannot have either manned or unmanned uh, uh, aircraft, balloons, you name it, traversing the United States and conducting surveillance on us. You, you never know when it turns into something hostile as well. I, I guess a lot of people probably had no idea how little we are able to ascertain uh, in real time when it comes to any sort of reconnaissance aircraft uh, or balloon or whatever uh, that enters our airspace. I mean, this one entered our airspace and the government, the Biden administration says they still don't know where it came from. Obviously, there was all that uh, retro inspection that, that found balloons that... That happened during the uh, Trump years, but they found it during the Biden years. Uh, part of the Pentagon is the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, how how are are they able to like figure out what's in the air at any given moment, or is that just too difficult to do in this day and age? Well, I, I don't want to get into those capabilities, Jake, but I think your point is taken: is we need to have the ability to see uh, see more clearly further out. We have a very very uh, uh, good system of. Uh, ground radars across the Canadian frontier. It's what NORAD uses. I know that during my time and before then, we were looking to upgrade those systems so that we could see further, deeper, lower in some cases. Uh, but clearly, this is exposing some type of uh, weakness, if you will, in our ability to surveil the horizon, what's coming our way. And in all things, the sooner you can, you can learn what's happening, uh, the quicker you can de detect it, make a decision, uh, e either phone a capital, certainly send up jets, scramble jets to investigate it, to get eyes on it. But clearly there needs to be improvement at this point, given this new vector that we're discovering. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's the point, is that we know of all the aircraft that are out there, right? Um, that And the FAA knows that, supposedly. Uh, but we don't 
know of objects until they until they hit our shores or our airspace? That seems rather limited in terms of what we see on the horizon. Well, this gets back to the issue about uh, understanding your your airspace, protecting your sovereignty. Is you want to know everything and anything that's entering your airspace and uh, or or approaching it, so you could quickly interrogate it and to find out find out whether it's friend or foe, whether it's authorized or unauthorized. And in all cases, I think it's the job of the military, I know that I viewed this as my role, is to give the president decision space. That means as much time and as many options as possible to make the best possible decision to defend you know, America and our interests. And that's this, again, is obviously exposing something that we need to work on, we need to improve. We're fortunate that we have such a great land space in Alaska before it hits the continental United States. But look, we've we got important strategic sites in Alaska, we have to safeguard. We have the people of Alaska we need to protect. And so it's just not a buffer place, but we need to improve our ability to look deep and understand what's happening, what's coming our way. All right. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Asper, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In just two weeks, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine will hit the one-year mark. Coming up, President Biden's plans to visit the volatile region. Plus, with the Super Bowl just days away, CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta is going beyond football and examining safety on the field for all athletes at the high school level. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead now. We learned today that President Biden intends to travel to Poland later this month to mark one year since Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. Poland is right next to Ukraine, of course. Officials in war-ravaged Ukraine think that today's fresh nationwide barrage of Russian missiles could be the precursor to Putin's dreaded spring offensive. Ukraine claims it has shot down more than 85% of the incoming missile fire. Still, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is intent on stepping up Ukraine's firepower with an official request to the Netherlands for F-16 fighter jets. CNN's David McKenzie is in the capital, Kiev, where running for shelter is once again becoming a daily part of life. Russian forces left exposed on the frozen flatlands around Volodar, one of the most deadly zones of the Eastern Front. Ukrainian artillery and drones picking off the static targets. Even pro-Russian sources say they've taken heavy losses here. Ukrainian foot patrols tour the southern outskirts of the heavily damaged town. And they appear to be taking some prisoners too. These men identify themselves as belonging to Russia's 155th Marine Brigade. To the north, on the edges of Bakhmut, Russian troops advancing block by block towards the city. They've been inching forward for months, taking heavy losses. Ukrainian forces desperate to deny Vladimir Putin a symbolic victory as the first anniversary of this war approaches. Across a wide area in the east, the Ukrainians detect a build-up in Russian troops and heavy weapons. That could be a prelude to a widely anticipated offensive. But Ukrainian officials have told CNN that in some areas their own troops are critically short of munitions. And throughout the country, Russia launched its largest missile barrage in months, targeting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, including this thermal plant in Dnipro. The city of Zaporizhia hit 17 times in one hour. A Russian cruise missile struck the power grid. The immense power of this strike throwing a car onto the roof of a house. They are not humans, says Yevhen of the Russians. 
I don't know what they are thinking about when they are doing this, when they press the buttons and shell civilians. The Ukrainians say they brought down 61 of the 70 missiles fired. Yes. Enough to limit damage to the power supply. As sirens blared, thousands of people in the capital, Kyiv, took to the subway shelters to run businesses and take classes. It's a well-practiced routine. The children may not be comfortable, says teacher Elena, but since September the alarms have been so frequent that they've got used to classes in the metro. In the skies above, the war against Russia's missiles and drones goes on. And those attacks continue into tonight, Jake. There have been several reports from Ukrainian forces that there have been drone attacks in the south and also threats here in the capital, Kyiv. They've asked people to stay indoors, stay underground as those air sirens go off to keep safe. You can be sure with President Biden coming to the region in the coming weeks that President Zelensky will continue pushing the U.S. and others to get more sophisticated weapons to push any advance of the Russians at the Eastern Front, including possibly those F-16s. Jake? David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. A comment made in 2012 by now Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida may come back and haunt him if he decides to run for president if Donald Trump has anything to do with it. Stay with us. In our politics lead, quote, it was a success. That's what President Biden told CNN about his order to shoot down what the White House is calling a high-altitude object near the northern coast of Alaska. This comes, of course, nearly a week after a U.S. fighter jet downed the Chinese surveillance balloon. Let's discuss. Abby, um, obviously quite a different handling of this unidentified flying object incident with the previous one. How much do you think it was the criticism that led him to have a, an itchy trigger finger this time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they're being hyper-vigilant in this case. Um, it sounds like the details of this are quite different from the other balloon, including that there's not really much of an indication that there were any communications going back and forth. The size of the balloon was far smaller. But I think they're trying to send a message that they know what's up there and they're going to take it down if it comes close to the United States. I think the White House also... Probably, this is a bit of a guess, uh, they don't mind the narrative that they're shooting things down. I mean, I think that some, a lot of Americans probably got a little bit of, you know, a jolt of patriotism last weekend to see F-22s flying, flying out and shooting down a, a giant Chinese balloon. And I think that that's probably not a bad thing to kind of tap into that a little bit. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think it's, they're clearly acutely aware of how it looked, right? And the way that it played from a political perspective. And... Clearly, I mean, we were talking about this uh, on your show a little bit earlier this week, like the imperatives of the intelligence community and the way that the intelligence community may grapple with something like this may put the communications aspect of it on the back burner. And perhaps nobody, you know, made the right phone call to the White House to alert people that, hey, like, you know, you can take a picture of this balloon with your iPhone, which means that it's going to be a political problem um, that, you know, sure, that they both a feel the need to do this, but also and the reality is the intelligence community probably does this more than we ever know. We just don't ever hear about it. And in this case, they feel the need to say, like, hey, we actually did this. That seems like a political move to me. Republicans still criticizing uh, President Biden about what happened last week. Uh, Congressman Mike Waltz was on the show earlier, a Republican from Florida, saying uh, that he's still, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of uh, 
uh, that he's still suspicious that the only reason they shot down the balloon last week was because people saw it. Uh, it was detectable by the human eye and that they wouldn't have come forward with it uh, information at all because they were so eager to send Secretary Blinken to China, have those high-level talks. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, there was reporting that there were balloons uh, during the Trump administration that I don't think we shot down, and um, you never really heard about those. So it's interesting then that the Biden administration had to eventually say something about this balloon because Americans could see it from the ground. And I think to their point, too, as well, he knew that um, this was an easy spot for Republicans to criticize him on. And so even though this balloon appears to be much smaller, I think that he definitely wanted to shoot it down sooner rather than later, because a lot of Republicans were wondering how the first balloon was ever able to make it over airspace and low enough that Americans could see it. And, and Pia, um, one of the questions I asked uh, Congressman Waltz was, because uh, he seemed to think that we should shoot down anything that enters our airspace. And I said, manned or unmanned, it doesn't matter. And he, basically, yes, that was his position. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that this story is interesting to people. It's a sh- literally an object in the sky. But there's wide agreement um, that we should do everything we can to send a strong message to China that they can't interfere with our um, with our operations here. And the fact that they uh, that the president took decisive action on this, I think, is important. And um, I think shows sends the American me- the public a, a strong message. Speaking of sending a strong message, uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell uh, earlier today uh, sending a strong sure message did. to Senator Rick Scott. Uh, Senator Rick Scott, as we all know, uh, when he re- revealed his Rescue America plan, uh, called for every federal program to be sunset. And then if it's worthwhile, it can be uh, reinstituted by Congress. And President Biden, during the State of the Union address, accurately said that some Republicans want to sunset Social Security and Medicare, which is what Rick Scott proposed, because those are federal programs. Uh, Mitch McConnell today said, that's not a Republican plan. That's a Rick Scott plan. Um, uh, But we should note that when Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel, uh, when it was released, the Rescue America plan from Rick Scott, she praised it. She said, quote, Republicans like Senator Rick Scott have real solutions to put us back on track. Republicans are offering a clear plan to protect and reinvigorate the America we know and love. Did, Did none of these people read the plan? Well, Mitch McConnell read it. And to be fair, from the very beginning, McConnell was like, this is going in the trash can. (laughs) He really had no interest in this plan. And that's part of the reason for the bad blood between these two men. He, He really dismissed it out of hand and knew how damaging it would be before the midterms. This is part two of a strategy. Um, well, I guess you could call it a strategy on Rick Scott's part to put out a plan that he thought was great. The Democrats then immediately seized on and ran on. I mean, they ran on this in 2022 as well in the last midterm cycle. And they found it to be a very effective argument to redirect the American public towards something that they know Americans really care about, which is the issue of entitlements. I think the White House is more than happy to have this discussion. And it it doesn't help that Republicans haven't put anything else on the table. It would be one thing if they were saying, okay. This is Rick Scott's plan, but we have a whole other plan. The problem is that the only plan that's out there is Rick Scott's plan. And so when they're saying we're going to negotiate over all these other things on the debt ceiling, it's not as credible because there are no other things on the table right now. That's interesting because McConnell uh, did say that they weren't going to put out like some sort of Senate plan uh, when everybody was running for reelection last year. Yeah. And I think, too, um, 
Definitely this is Biden and Democrats' way of trying to distract from record high inflation and an economy that a lot of Americans are currently suffering under. And um, so it's smart politics for them, honestly, to um, keep touting the Rick Scott plan as, hey, Republicans um, want to cut Medicare and Social Security. It's a little disingenuous because, um, you know, you have McConnell saying this is a bad idea and that, you know, it's dead in the water. In addition to that, prior to the State of the Union, Speaker McCarthy also said that any cuts to Medicare and Social Security were off the table. So party leadership has indicated this is not going to go anywhere. And so I think, um, you know, it seems that Rick Scott is being um, hung out to dry. Well, but that's why it's such an unforced error on Rick Scott's part. I mean, and you I mean, just watch some of the interviews Rick Scott is giving around this. I mean, he clearly as and, and you can pick it up behind the scenes, too, when you talk to people close to both these men. I mean, this fight between the two of them is personal. It is nasty. It is angry. McConnell, you know, and his team think that Rick Scott is hurting the overall prospects of the party. I think that's why he put it the way he did, saying this is just Rick Scott's plan. It's not the Republican plan. I'm in charge of the Republican Party. I mean, by all intents and purposes, he is right now um, in Washington. And Rick Scott's people keep trying this and keep, you know, keep taking shots at McConnell. This is not the first time that this has happened. I kind of wonder what might be, like, at what point they get the message that, hey, like, this isn't really going over very well, but so far, not so much. Well, I think part of the problem is the Republican Party is nominating candidates at the highest level around the country. We saw in 22, every Senate candidate uh, in every major contest, Republican, had at some point or currently uh, openly thought out loud, maybe we should privatize, maybe we should cut the knot, says Blake Masters in Arizona, or take, you know, take a, a hard look at it. Um, you know, so it's 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 the problem is that these election cycles, it's like you have party leadership and then the candidates that they're nominating are out there with very strong records, often on video talking about privatizing Social Security, letting, you know, um, letting us gamble our, our, our savings on Wall Street. So I think it's a, a, a party in conflict around this issue. And the American public is is for sure not supportive of the idea. And it's and it's not just Democrats that are taking on Republicans for this. Um, CNN's K-File team is out with a new article showing that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, back when he was a member of the House, uh, once backed a plan to privatize Medicare and Social Security during his first campaign for Congress in 2012. And about this, K-File's team writes, former President Donald Trump and Democrats have already signaled plans to weaponize DeSantis's comments against him should he announce for president. So it's not just Democrats. Trump is going to go after DeSantis on this. Certainly. And I noticed in that story as well, they reached out to comment uh, DeSantis's office for comment and they declined to comment, which is interesting because um, those comments that he made previously were over 10 years ago. It's fair that his position on that could have changed by now. But the fact that he's not um, going on the record to say whether or not he still supports those decisions, um, it's allowing the Biden campaign and Trump campaign to fill that void. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, I thought that 11 years ago. I don't think it anymore. But uh, no comment doesn't do that. Thanks one and all. And of course, if you didn't get enough Abby Phillip on the panel today, and who did, really? Who could have? Be sure to catch Abby on Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Thanks to all. How do you move forward when all you see is loss and destruction? We're going to go back onto the ground in Turkey, and we're going to talk with a U.S. aid worker. That's next. Now to Turkey and Syria, 23,000 lives lost so far with countless victims still trapped under the rubble of buildings flattened by Monday's magnitude 7.8 earthquake. CNN's Jamana Karache reports now for us from the southern port city 
of Iskandarun, where those who survived the quake are, are still in a state of complete shock. The distance a city that once was, now its people left to pick up the pieces of their broken lives. Today, aid made it to this makeshift camp in Iskandarun. Young and old, they dig through the piles of clothes and shoes, essentials for survival now. No one can yet comprehend. Elif comes up to us crying. She's not only lost her home, her only sister is gone. I have no mother, no father, she tells us. She was my everything. In seconds, every life here upended. For days, Fatima hasn't let go of 10-year-old Finduk. Whenever he hears sirens, his entire body shakes. When the earthquake happened, I thought it was doomsday, she tells us. We're living an apocalypse. Her daughter Melis was preparing for her wedding. Now they're living in the back of a truck. They say they're thankful to be alive, but it's all just too much. These girls went to show us their tent. They're from Syria, but Turkey is the only home these children have known. Inside the tent, Ibrahim, who fled the war in Syria 10 years ago, tells us he lost 18 members of his extended family in the earthquake. He says he thought the days of carrying his children to safety, protecting them from collapsing buildings, was behind him. They're saying they were terrified when the earthquake happened, but they're just glad that they are safe. God bless the souls of all those who died. No parent can shield their child from this reality. Surrounded by death and destruction, there's no escaping this nightmare. And Jake, so far the Turkish government has been saying that its top priority is search and rescue operations. And although the chances of finding people still alive under the rubble is getting slimmer by the minute, the search and rescue operations are continuing. I mean, on almost every street we've been on today, there are active search and rescue operations. But take a look at this. You have people out here in the open. It's freezing cold. This is a kid's playground and it has been turned into a makeshift camp. You've got some tents that have been set up by the government, but at the same time, you have so many people who are sleeping on benches, sleeping on the floor. They're just covered in blankets. They're um, sitting by these fires they've created. I mean, we've seen this everywhere. You have people still sleeping in their cars. So Jake, right now, the shift, the, the focus is really going to shift to uh, humanitarian aid, to relief efforts, because we are really seeing now this um, the the uh, this is turning into a real serious humanitarian crisis. You've got millions of people across this quake zone in Turkey who have been impacted by this um, earthquake, and they have nowhere to go right now. Jamana Karachi in Iskandarun, Turkey. Thank you so much for that report. Let's bring in John Morrison. He is deployed with a USAID-led response in Audiomon, Turkey. He's also a planning section chief for the Fairfax County, Virginia Fire and Rescue Department. John, thanks for what you do, and, and thanks for joining us. You told CNN earlier today that your team has seen victims pulled out of rubble alive up to seven days after the other quakes. So we're now more than four days out of this quake. Has your team found anyone alive today? No, not today. We're still working and doing those uh, wide area searches. As your uh, reporter said, uh, everywhere you go around this, this city, there are uh, search and rescue teams working, and us among them. 
so we're working and, and trying to find those places where victims may be deeply entombed inside the structures uh, so that we can use our heavy breaching and breaking uh, concrete tools uh, to rescue those victims. John, how do you do how do you do this job and, and stay hopeful uh, amidst all this this devastation? Uh, it's it's certainly difficult sometimes, but uh, we were sent here to do a job and, and that job was to to help people as, as best we can. And so uh, we certainly have seen victims, uh, you know, that have been rescued several days beyond the, the current time we have. And so that gives us some hope and some optimism uh, that that the work we're doing uh, is, is meaningful and that there's the, uh, the potential to still have victims alive in the rubble. Your team has rescue dogs specifically trained to find people in the rubble who are still alive. How, how vital are the dogs to your operation? Yeah, they're essential, uh, along with the technical search components that we have, such as acoustic listening devices and search cameras. Uh, so the dogs are one of the first assets we deploy on a rubble pile. Uh, we'll send one dog running over the pile to see if they alert on human scent. Uh, and if they do, we'll send another dog then to confirm and see if that second dog hits in the same area. And then when we do, we'll use our technical search devices to sort of hone in and see if we can find somebody that is deeply in tune. Uh, so with us here at, on this, we have 160 uh, search and rescue team members between Ferris County, Virginia and Los Angeles County, California, uh, that are here as part of the USAID search and rescue team and 12 dogs along with those, those people. So Turkey's Ministry of Family and Social Services announced today that the families of 263 children who have been pulled out of the rubble in Turkey, their families could not be reached. What is the protocol um, for reuniting families or trying to do so if you do miraculously find someone alive in the rubble? So a lot of times uh, the, the 112 system equivalent to the American 911 system here is functional. Uh, so by the time that we get some, typically it's several hours uh, from when we hear somebody uh, to when we can actually retrieve them and get them out by having to go through the concrete to get them out. Uh, so there is time to bring that uh, that ambulance or the, or the police over uh, to turn them over to definitive care, and they'll work to do the reuniting with the families. The best of America, John Morrison in Audiomon, Turkey. Thank you for what you do. It's inspiring and so important. Many of you want to help, and you can with CNN's Impact Your World. Head to CNN.com slash impact for more. Ahead of the Super Bowl this weekend, the Super Bowl this weekend, concerns about safety are still top of mind after the on-field collapse of Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta is investigating the safety of contact sports at the highest at, at the high school level. That's next. Good news in our politics lead. Democratic Senator John Fetterman from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has been released from the hospital. According to a statement from his office, multiple tests ruled out another stroke and showed no evidence of seizures. The senator was hospitalized Wednesday after feeling lightheaded. Of course, you remember last May, Fetterman suffered a near fatal stroke just days before the Senate Democratic primary, which he won. Fetterman's doctor acknowledged last year that he continues to suffer auditory processing issues, but they say he is recovering well. In our sports lead, a standing ovation last night at the NFL Honors for the medical and athletic training staffers who helped save DeMar Hamlin's life, the Buffalo Bills player who suffered cardiac arrest during a game last month. But would a high school player have gotten the same immediate and effective life-saving treatment if this had happened during one of his games? CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta investigates. Go ahead and go over the top. I don't like how he went down. When Buffalo Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, collapsed on the field in January, 
Pete Lake immediately thought about his son, Peter. It really brought back a lot of emotions and then still does, truthfully. Two years ago, then a high school freshman, Peter Lake was playing defense for the Loyola Dons against the McDonough Eagles. He was right around the 20-yard line. What you're about to watch is the exact moment his heart stopped beating. I went to the ball, I stepped in front of it, and I just got hit. Like, I've done that many times before. I kind of even winced at him, like, just thinking in my head, oh, that one's going to hurt. Jeremy Parr is the assistant athletic director and the head athletic trainer at Peter's school. That sunny day, he was watching diligently from the sideline. Because this shot was pretty hard, I was watching Peter instead of the course of the action of the game. I started looking for what was going to happen next, and then just like that, you know, I like got dizzy and I just like blacked out. I could hear first. He had some agonal breathing, so it, it was like this gasping or gurgling for air. He's prone on the ground. I checked for a pulse and we didn't have one. The diagnosis, commotio cordis, a rare phenomenon with fewer than 30 cases reported every year. Now let me show you exactly what happened to Peter. His heart here is contracting and relaxing. That's a normal rhythm. But at the exact millisecond the heart needs to recharge before the next beat, that's this little bump here, the lacrosse ball hit the left side of his chest. As a result, his heart never got the chance to relax. It starts fibrillating instead. Peter goes into cardiac arrest, and the clock starts ticking. What was that like for you? Didn't have time to think. With no pulse, no breathing, we needed to get the AED and EMS activated as soon as possible. And in Peter's case, it all worked, and fast, two to three minutes. But watching all this as a parent, I couldn't help but wonder, what if this were my kid's school, your kid's school? As part of a CNN investigation, we learned that nowadays, at least 20 states have laws requiring AEDs. And in reality, about 70 to 80% of schools have at least one defibrillator on hand. But how accessible they are, that is the real issue we uncovered. What if it had happened, you know, a few miles away from here? It would have been a totally different outcome. You can do CPR till you're blue in the face and it's never gonna restart the heart. It is 100% access to an AED within a very timely period. Turns out, where you live makes a big difference. For example, in Ohio and Michigan, more than 70% of public schools had AEDs, but in locations that simply couldn't be reached in time. In Oregon, just half of schools had an AED accessible within four minutes of all sports venues. In Vermont, despite 81% of schools having an AED, just 16% of them had them located at fields or arenas. And about half the time, they were in the school nurse's office or the lobby. This is an example of a portable... We learned that athletic trainers are critical. And schools that had athletic trainers were more likely to have AEDs. The chance of survival from a cardiac arrest nearly doubled to over 80% if an athletic trainer or AED were used. But as things stand now, a third of the country's schools don't have anyone in that position. All athletes should be afforded the same resources that we have here that Division I athletes in college have and, and professional sports as well. That's the thing. It's availability and access. Both are crucially important. 
And it's one of the most important things you can do for your kids. Make sure AEDs are available and accessible in your kid's school. It saved Peter Lake's life and allowed for moments like this. Now, a lot of people may be wondering about the cost of these uh, AEDs, $1,000 to $2,000, depending on the model. But, Jake, that's not a yearly cost. I mean, you know, they, they, as long as they stay charged, they can be used for many years. Need roughly one AED per 500 students. That's what parents should be asking for. And again, make sure they're accessible. Not that they just have them, but they're accessible, preferably within two minutes, Jake. As you saw there, it, it can save a life. makes a huge difference. All right. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Coming up on Sunday on State of the Union, I'm going to be enjoyed by, joined by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner, Michigan Gover- Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. That is Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon. Coming up next in the Situation Room, we're going to have more on the unidentified object that the U.S. military shot out of the sky this afternoon. A former director of Naval- National Intelligence weighs in live. Until then, I will see you Sunday morning. And of course, go birds. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.